I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hi, John. How are you doing today? I am doing all right. I'm excited for uh, edition number two of our February flops. Now, unlike last week where we talked about Merrily We Roll Along and how it was a show that flopped and flopped gloriously, but was something we kind of were in love with despite some of its faults, this week's going to be a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I am going too far by saying that we both hate this show. No, no, you're not going too far at all. So, John, what are we talking about this week? This week, we are talking about the 2010 flop, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. Music and lyrics by Michael Friedman and book by Alex Timbers. Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson opened on October 13th, 2010 at the Bernard Jacobs Theater and played 94 performances before closing on January 2nd, 2011. Bloody Bloody was directed by Alex Timbers, choreographed by Danny Mefford, and the music direction by Justin Levine. The original cast included Benjamin Walker as Andrew Jackson, Christine Nielsen as the storyteller, and Maria Elena Ramirez as Rachel. Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson was nominated for two Tony Awards and won none. Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson opens with the Declaration of American Exceptionalism and how power, read land, needs to be taken from not only the remaining European powers of England, France, and Spain, but also the indigenous population of the U.S., referred to in the show as Native Americans. Ultimately, the goal is to empower the people and take influence away from the elite. We meet Andrew Jackson as a young man at the end of the 18th century. He is surrounded by death, either by cholera, his family, or Native Attacks, a local businessman. He joins the military, but is imprisoned by the British during the American Revolution. The war ends, and Jackson is freed. While regaling a tavern of his war exploits, Jackson is interrupted and attacked by a group of Spaniards. While he is victorious, he is also injured in the fight. He meets Rachel, a local woman who helps him during his recovery. They fall in love, and even though Rachel is still technically married, wed. A series of vignettes follows. Jackson, who is disgusted by the young government's lack of attention to the growing native threat in the frontier, founds a militia to remove native tribes in the southeast U.S. Famous figures such as John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, and Martin Van Buren comment on their growing unease with Jackson's actions. But Jackson doesn't care, commenting he's secured more land for the U.S. than Thomas Jefferson. The story jumps to the end of the War of 1812. Jackson has earned a battlefield promotion to major and has successfully defended the city of New Orleans. Ironically, the battle occurs 18 days after the U.S. and British have signed a peace treaty. And now Andrew Jackson is a national hero. He is elected to the U.S. Senate and runs for president in 1824. While he has a plurality of both the popular vote and electoral college votes, no one in the race met the requisite number needed 
so the race is decided in the House of Representatives. Through a series of backroom deals motivated by the aforementioned unease with Jackson amongst the government, John Quincy Adams is the House's choice for president. Disgusted, Jackson resigns his Senate seat and returns home. Four years later, and Jackson is back, running once again for president, which causes more than a little strife with his wife, Rachel. He overcomes Senate interference against himself and his wife, who is outright accused of bigamy, to win the election of 1828. However, Rachel, overcome by the stress of the race, dies. Jackson sees his election and her death as a sign to take back the U.S. Now in office, Jackson is faced with problems on multiple fronts. The instability of the National Bank, the question of native relocation, and the expansion of the country. Looking to gain favor with the public, he polls constantly to see what the populace thinks he should do. Eventually, he consolidates more and more power to the executive branch at the expense of the legislative and judicial branches. But as the problems grow more serious, he loses the backing of the people who are looking for a leader, not a manager. Ultimately, Jackson decides he is the only one who can control the country's fate. He meets with Black Fox, a nominal leader of a confederation of tribes in Tennessee. He implores Black Fox to remove all the tribes to the west of the Mississippi. When the native leader asks for more time to confer with his people, Jackson snaps and declares that the army will forcibly move the natives west, setting off an event known as the Trail of Tears. The show ends with a look at Jackson's overarching legacy, how he was beloved by some as a populist hero and reviled by others as a genocidal maniac, and how Jackson's legacy is propped up by the collective culpability of his citizens. So this musical is intended as satire, but it fails utterly. I think you're slightly understating it. It it wants us to kind of think that it's doing this kind of wink wink nudge nudge thing saying, Hey, look, look, look at this crazy guy and look what he look look what he's doing. Isn't this isn't this crazy? Isn't this wacky? And it's like, but you're making it seem almost sympathetic to him. It's it's a it's a problem that almost is mirrored in another uh, in, in a Sondheim show uh, assassins which is really quick about you know assassins throughout history that have tried to or successfully assassinated presidents of the United States but ultimately the satire there is in the sense that they're revealed as monsters they're revealed as people who are unwell or mentally imbalanced or angry and you're not supposed to feel bad for them the problem here is i don't feel the satire is trying to tell us that we should be laughing at Jackson. I feel it, it comes off as sympathetic. It, it and, and at times disgustingly so. That you know, they're towards the end of the show when he's when he's entreating with Black Fox, and you know, the show almost plays it off as well. He had no other choice than to do what he did. No, that's not true. That's not the case he wanted their land. He wanted control. He wanted power. He wanted them gone. Like that's, that's the reality. That's the hardcore ironclad reality of the situation. And for this show to kind of push this narrative of, well, 
he really didn't have a choice, we don't think, maybe. It, it doesn't come off as disingenuous. It doesn't come off as satire. It just comes off as bad writing. Yeah, so this is not a show I've seen before. Uh, I wasn't familiar with the show before we picked it for one of our flops. And so just in listening to the soundtrack, none of the satire comes across. It just comes across as exceptionally uncomfortable and just not good. And then they double down on it, especially with a lot of their portrayals of uh, Native people. Um, it comes off as cartoonish, as stereotype. Um, and it, it doesn't help. It makes, it makes it uncomfortable. And not in a, you need to learn from this and take away something so that you can be a little bit more informed, a little bit wiser. It just, it plays off of the chief Wahoo stereotype you know, the old, the old Cleveland Indians mascot. It's not meant to chide us. It's not meant to say, wow, this is how things used to be. And aren't you glad it's not like this anymore? It just plays it pretty straight and it's distasteful. Yeah, it's bad though. On a completely unrelated note, Cleveland baseball team now, very excited to see that change occurring. In 20, 2022, I believe is when they're going I think to... they're going to take it through the end of this next season yeah but at least you know they have finally acknowledged the fact that it's a terrible name which means we're coming for you next atlanta get used to it you're you're the yes. last one <laughs> you're well, you're the holdout <laughs> the, 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 do, do we feel okay about the chicago blackhawks okay we're coming for you chicago and atlanta you're the last holdouts <laughs> I'm making light of the situation and I really shouldn't. It's inappropriate on, on even the most basic level. It's offensive in the most realistic level. And I look forward to a day when we can enjoy sports that isn't at the expense of someone else. Like that. I believe I learned that for the first time in kindergarten, that you should never make enjoyment out of subjugating or making fun of or, or mocking someone else. I mean, you know, only, you know, only a kindergarten concept, whatever. So let's talk about the music yes, of let's. this show, because that's something that we can tangibly deal with. So this is an alt-rock show, 2010. That's sort of the in-vogue thing to do. And, you know, uh, I don't think either of us particularly like this music, but in terms of being an alt-rock musical, it does that i'm trying to find a way to avoid using words like good or successful but it accomplishes being an alt-rock musical it's not particularly memorable to me ultimately and i and that as as a musician personally is more egregious than you know the the subjective terms of is it good music or is it bad music some good music is bad to other people and some bad music is good to other people that is that's taste that's choice those are some subjective elements to a degree what this score ultimately has as its greatest syndrome to me personally is it's just not memorable i don't know that without doing some serious study I could sing a tune from this show. Like I've, I've listened to this show many times over the last several years at various points. I've had opportunities where this show was a possibility to do 
And so I, I've prepared I've prepared for this show in the sense that I started learning it on its most surface level. But even with that, even in a in a preparatory way, to this day I can't hum a tune from this show. It's very generic. It is super generic, and it just sort of feels. I mean, I don't want to say that the composers and creators of the show didn't try because I know it takes a tremendous amount of effort to even get to having a flop on Broadway, but it just feels like they picked the lowest hanging fruit. Like, ooh, we're cursing. Isn't that exciting? And ooh, we added some drum fills. Isn't that neat? Like, it just doesn't do anything for me in any way. And it's interesting because we were talking about before recording this around 2010. So that that decade after the the 2000s, there was this explosion at the regional and off Broadway level of these kind of alt rock shows, where people were reimagining old shows. Um, there was a, a rather memorable take on Night of the Living Dead, and you know all of them had this kind of alt rock aesthetic to it. It had this alt rock score. Now, to be fair, and, and it's funny because I just used the whole subjective good-bad thing, so many of them were so bad. They were just the worst. And as a consequence, they made it to the regional level and, you know, big enough to where they got like the one-paragraph blurb on Playbill, or in that time we would have started to see Playbill.com, so early incarnations, but that was it. Um, a couple of them got recordings because they were either self-financed or the regional theater that produced them decided to throw enough money to spend, you know, 24 hours in a recording studio. And and you can find some of them on Spotify nowadays, but even then, there's not a ton of um, proof that they even existed beyond a Wikipedia article. So the fact that Bloody Bloody made it to Broadway is in itself an achievement in saying that there were enough people that said this show did not suck, that it was able to actually work up, prepare, and open on Broadway. But parts of this show, and again, I'm just working off the soundtrack here, but parts of this show are laughably bad. Uh, you know, as you said, none of this sticks in my mind. And I will confess that in my uh, deep and detailed preparation for this recording, I listened to the soundtrack all of once. Um, but like the first time that Jackson and Rachel meet, I couldn't quote any lines. I couldn't sing any any of the music to you. But I remember sitting and listening to it and just laughing because it was so utterly camp and trash. Like it just, it's not artistic and i think that's one of my biggest complaints with this show setting aside the fact that the satire fails completely and it becomes uncomfortable and offensive the show doesn't have any real artistic merits to it and i like my theater to be meritous i agree and ultimately it comes down to the failing of this show is good show bad show indifferent show whatever a show is successful when there is something in that show that makes you care about it, which evokes a feeling, which evokes an emotion, which evokes some sort of attachment or proto-attachment to it, um, whether it be a character, a story, a message, the music, the orchestration, the, the light, something. You, you have to be able to walk out of a, uh, of a show and have a connection on any level. That's all we're asking. Just one level. 
And there is nothing in this show that no. I don't care about Andrew Jackson. Matter of fact, from what little I knew about him before this show, I hate him even more because the guy was a jerk. He was. I'm sorry. That's just the reality of it. Andrew Jackson was a bad president and he was a bad person. We don't need a musical about him, <laughs> but we got one. So if you're going to do it, if you're going to make that musical about arguably one of the worst figures in American history, do something to make it so that I'm invested. Something, anything at all. And they didn't. There's just, there's nothing in this show that spoke to me at all. Yeah, I agree. I, my very best reaction to this show has been apathy. And that just isn't good enough. Yeah. It, it ultimately is good enough for 94 performances. Which feels generous. It does. And it wouldn't shock me if, and this is purely apocryphal in my, in my head canon, and I'm not saying this was the case, but it made it through January 2011. I am sure there was a producer or someone in control there that said, damn it, we opened in October. We're at least going to make it through the end of the year. And they did. This is also a show that's not particularly produced often anymore at the regional or community or educational level. Um, it is fairly often when it is announced in any type of production beyond podunk community players. It is often picketed by native groups for just the, the horrible portrayals of the native peoples in this show. Again, not, not sympathetic, not anything other than just the most blandest caricature that just is offensive at every level. So if anything we've said in the last, I have no idea how long this is going to be, but probably too long has made you want to go listen to bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. I would encourage you to not, but it is on Spotify and other places. You can find it. You can listen to it. You can judge for yourself, but, uh, this is our first flop that shows that not everything Broadway does is good. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.